want to just, before we go to the sermon, thank everybody for your prayers over the last several days for our family, and particularly for Samuel. He is um, full-on concussion. Uh, if you don't know what it's like to have a concussion, good for you. Uh, that's awesome. But if you've ever had a concussion, you can relate. So day three. So please continue to keep him in your prayers. But he will, he'll, Lord willing, he'll be fine. Um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42. Um, I know the text is Psalm 43, uh, but I think it's going to be really obvious why first I want to start us off with Psalm 42, and then we'll go immediately into Psalm 43. So I'll just go, I'll be reading directly from one to the other without interruption. So beginning at the beginning of Psalm 42. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng. And lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. For from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Our Lord, we ask then that indeed you would send out your light and your truth by your spirit through your word. Lead us again to Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we may rest in he who is our rock and our refuge. Amen. I think 
uh, from reading those two texts together that you can see there is a clear relationship between Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And in fact, it is common amongst the interpreters to read them as a single psalm. And there's good reason for doing that. One, to get technical, you'll notice that Psalm 43 lacks a superscription. A superscription is the part before the psalm begins that gives authorship. Not all the psalms have them, uh, but many do. And if you have an electronic version of the Bible, this is where it's really fun, because they have to put a zero in there, because there's no verse number. So that's like verse zero, which is not a real thing. Uh, that makes literally no sense if you think about it. But anyway, it's the nothing verse. The nothing verses, there is no nothing verse at the beginning of Psalm 43. So it seems to just flow one from the other. And then there's that repeated refrain, uh, verse 5, verse 11 of Psalm 42, and verse, uh, verse 5 again of Psalm 43, which would appear to argue that, there is a, that they are to be taken as a single psalm. On the other hand, uh, this comes down to us as two separate psalms, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And uh, as we saw last week when I preached this text, preached Psalm 42, Psalm 42 stands on its own independently with a coherent message. It's a, and that message is very simple. It's, it says very plainly that you are surrounded by God's loving kindness and therefore you should put your hope in his promises. Very straightforward and simple message. And in fact, and this is where we get into the weeds, uh, last week I preached from the New King James Version of the Bible. This week I'm preaching from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And this is where, um, I don't know, Carmen, you want to put up the comparison slides? Because uh, there's a, this is, this, this is where I can actually use PowerPoint, or wait, it's Keynote, sorry. Um, it's a branded product. Uh, but so you see the difference between, this is Psalm 42. So, so, what ha, so here's the thing. Okay, if, I just want to say a word of apology to any King James-only people in the room. The Bible was not originally written in English. Uh, and so, and it was not originally written in the 1600s in English by inspiration, right? This is why we have different translations. It was written in Hebrew. Uh, and, and so that means that translators uh, are also interpreters, and they have to make certain choices as they translate the Bible for us. And just as uh, in a side, this is a sort of an aside, but this is why I always encourage people, if, you're gonna do ser- if you want to do serious Bible study, uh, you should have at least two, two or three Bible translations. Just to make one real simple observation, uh, the, the word, there's a word in that repeats in 5 and 11, again, the, the word turmoil. Uh, why are you in turmoil within me? Uh, in the English Standard Version, it's disquiet. In the New King James Version, I think last night I was looking at the, we were in, in, in Family Devotions, we read the same thing from the New, New International Version, and it was trouble. So that, what's the difference between disquiet and turmoil? I don't know, but just, so, so there's no right or wrong here, but it's tra- interpretive choices, particularly with poetic text. Now, here's, here's the point though, that, the needs, that I want to make with the New King James Version, what they do, uh, they decide to stick with the original versification, the original verse divisions. And so you have a different reading then for verse 5 in, the, in this translation, the New King James Translation, than you have in the English Standard Version. If you go with that, 
then the refrain, the, the apparent refrain, the apparent repeated phrase that you have in verses 5 and 11 in Psalm 42, it's not there. What you have in verse 11 is picking up on the language of verse 5, but it rewrites it, it rephrases it. But if you put Psalm 43 onto the end of Psalm 42, you reinterpret Psalm 42. It becomes a commentary, if you will, on Psalm 43, and then that allows you to reframe the entirety of Psalm 42. So what's going on? This is where we get into a little bit of the weeds of Bible interpretation. Well, one thing that's important to understand when you're doing Bible translation, I'm sorry, doing Bible interpretation, translation is also, but, but if you're doing Bible interpretation, and studying your text, what does this mean, is to remember that the Bible comes to us in a canonical form. Uh, canonical, C-A-N-O-N-I-C-A-L, not C-A-N-N-O-N, because that's the one that goes boom. Uh, this is canon, see, with one N in the middle. And that's an important distinction, not just for munitions, uh, but in understanding, because that word canon is important because it means that those who have gone before us have received the Word of God, and they have put it together for us. And there are different ways to order, for example, the books of the Bible. Uh, the Hebrew, in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament uh, is different. They order the books of the Bible differently than we have in the version that we use in English. Which one is right and which one is wrong, I don't know. It's sort of, an, we can have an arm wrestling contest over that. That's really the only way to settle that question. That's, but that's a different arrangement. The same thing, now that's not just that choice that we make now, but it's also in the scriptures themselves. Proverbs and the Psalter by, are two of the most prominent examples of editing within a book itself. So the book of Proverbs, if you read it carefully, has various introductions of its sections. Uh, this is a collection of the words of the wise. These are the Proverbs of King Lemuel. So, so there's different collections that are all put together. Book of Psalms it's, is not a book of Psalms. We call it the Psalter because there's five books of Psalms. And, and, and that's right there in the text. Book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And so it's clearly edited. There were editors who came alongside. So we not only have, and this is, this is where all the English majors uh, just rejoice when they hear this, that the Bible does not only come to us from biblical writers, but from biblical editors. Uh, so that's, so let us rejoice. So that's, that's why, you know, proof writers are happy, proof editors are, are, are happy to hear that. Uh, that. That the editors played a role in this, in putting this together. And so why do we have Psalm 42 and Psalm 43? Psalm 42 can stand on its own, but if you put it with Psalm 43, Psalm 43 becomes a commentary on Psalm 42 and gives you an interpretation that is different from what you get if you read Psalm 42 by itself. Uh, this, is, this then takes those, Psalm 42 by, on its own uh, does not resolve its themes. It leaves them open. And that's on purpose. Leaves you with that sense of being troubled and disquieted of soul. Uh, the structure is, is very unclear. It's very unclear to nail down exactly how to divide up uh, Psalm 42 into sections. But what happens when you add Psalm 43 to Psalm 42 is you have a commentary 
if you will, a commentary that gives you an interpretation of Psalm 42. Here's how you can read this text. Here's how you can uh, deal with the ambiguities. Very simply, and, and one of the simplest ways it does that is by taking the, the, the refrain, ta- taking verse 11, repeating it at the, end of, 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 uh, at the end of Psalm 43 as verse 5, therefore reinterpreting, stay, stay with me, reinterpreting Psalm 42 verse 5 and turning that into a refrain, and now we have three clear stanzas. And for those of you who are not paying attention in your high school English class, a stanza is a division within a poem. Okay, and for those who haven't taken high school English, um, you probably already know that, uh, and, and you're just shaking your head sadly at your parents who don't understand these things. So now you have three clear stanzas, and then that structure helps resolve some of the ambiguities and the lack of resolution. Now, why do both of these things? Why have a Psalm 42 and a Psalm 43? Because both things can be true. Both of these things can be true, that we can say, on the one hand, there are times in the Christian life that lack all resolution, and in fact, much of the time living as a Christian, you feel like things don't have resolution. There's a lot going on in your life that right now does not seem to be resolved, and Psalm 42 expresses that clearly. But there are other times, and maybe at the same time, that issues have resolution. And that's part of living in this world, that there are parts of your life where issues have been clearly and plainly resolved, other parts that have not. Both both interpretations of Psalm 42 then have equal validity because they equally speak to all aspects and all times within the Christian life. And so that's why I'm going to be preaching Psalm 43 this morning as a commentary on Psalm 42. That Psalm 42 can stand on its own, but Psalm 43 does not. So we're going to focus on Psalm 43 this morning, but with an illusion, but with looking back very clearly at Psalm 42. And so that's why we preached, that's why we looked at, I preached uh, Psalm 42 last week. Uh, I know that a lot of you were really excited um, to then come back today for the sequel. Um, I think the brewers were lined up outside beforehand, like you know, like when the second Star Wars movie came out. Uh, but 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 like the second Star Wars movie, I'm really I think this Psalm 43, this this one can also stand on its own, uh, even though it's 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 better to have seen Psalm 40, heard Psalm 42. We can still do Psalm 43. So I'm going to read Psalm 43 uh, one one more time. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so Psalm 43 brings us back to the essential theme of Psalm 42, the question, has God rejected you? Because that's what it appears to be the case. 
that God appears to have rejected you. You're surrounded by enemies on every side. Uh, From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? That is the dominant note in Psalm 42, mourning, weeping, lament. I am troubled, I have uncertainty, I don't know what's going on, and this has opened up an opportunity for the enemy to accuse. Uh, Psalm 42, verse 3, where is your God? Again, in Psalm 42, verse 10, where is your God? This is Psalm 42, verse 9, the oppression of the enemy, the enemy coming against you and attacking you because God appears to have left you alone, left you into a time of mourning and weeping. But notice that what Psalm 42 does, Psalm 43 rather does in verse, uh, four, verse 1 is to narrow down the nature of the enemy. Uh, Last week, it was simply an enemy, people who torment you by talking about the absence of God. Now it sharpens the focus. Uh, The really hardship comes from the ungodly, the ungodly. The ungodly uh, are those people who live as though they are not accountable to God, who live as though God is not going to judge them. They may call upon the name of the God of Israel or not, but this is who, these are people who lack discernment and understanding. They don't see the world from the Lord's lens, from the lens of the Psalter and the way it sees the world. And so under the circumstance then, Psalm 43 takes a step beyond what Psalm 42 is willing to say. In Psalm 43, we end with, we are stuck with or land in a place of mourning and weeping and lament. But now, in Psalm 43, we're calling upon God to vindicate. Vindicate. Vindicate is, is, is a great Bible word. It's one of those words that, sadly, uh, we lose some of its oomph in the English language because we use a variety of words uh, instead of one word, which we have in different languages. That word, the word vindicate, is closely related to the word justify. To be vindicated is to be proven right or to be proven just. So we use the word vindicate, right, just, justice, righteous, vindication. We use three different words, and it would be really nice if in English we didn't have such a wide vocabulary, um, which... I don't think I've ever said before in my life, Uh, but but it's... So, 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 but but really, okay, so, so English, it really is a great language, but... But here it's saying, prove me right. They are the ones who are unjust. They are the ones who have abandoned you. This is the person crying out. This is a Christian crying out. Like, I don't, I've not done anything to deserve this. As a believer, you can be in that circumstance. Understand that you can be in a place where it's like you're not, you haven't rebelled against the Lord. You haven't refused to go to church. You haven't, like, played played cards or anything horrible like that, you know, you can play cards, that's fine. Uh, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like I said, you're fine. You've, 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 you've done what you need to do. You're, you're pursuing the Lord. You're praying the Psalms. And yet the Lord seems to have abandoned you and the wicked are accusing you. The wicked are trying to make your life harder. And it's in those circumstances that you can cry out to the Lord for vindication. Prove me right. Prove to them. Prove to them that I belong to you. Give me what I need. 
because you are the God in whom I take refuge. But because you are the God in whom I take refuge, why have you rejected me? It doesn't make sense. Like, I'm taking refuge in you. I'm praying to you. I'm coming to you. And yet, the enemy continues to pursue. How can I be protected by God? And yet still, the enemy is against me. Yet still, they get in their darts. And, and so the basic question then, that Psalm 43 repeats, is, is this simply, when God is not a protective refuge against persecution and misery, has he abandoned you? Has he rejected you? Well, what's the answer? The answer, very simply, is to take refuge in worship. Because God is present. God is present and he calls you to himself. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now again, this is something that we saw in Psalm 42. The one we read, holy hill and dwelling, that means something extremely specific. It's not metaphorical language in the Old Testament. It's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is built around Mount Zion. I used to live in Colorado, and so I had to explain the Mount Zion was, it was actually like a hill, but now we live in Ohio, and so you can just believe that Mount Zion is a mountain. Uh, but it's, it's basically the hill around which Jerusalem was built, the highest place in Jerusalem, uh, and, it's, and it's where the temple was built. So that's God's holy hill, and it really was a holy hill. Uh, it, we forget sometimes that, that what the work of Christ on the cross did. And one thing that it did is it changed the categories of holy and unholy, of clean and unclean. There was literally a place on planet Earth that was holier than every place else during the Old Testament time. And that was Zion, because that was where the temple was. And it was holy, because that's where God's presence was. It was a presence of God localized, even though God is, 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 is omnipresent, he's everywhere. He, lo- he had a local presence there at the temple where he could come and be worshipped. And so he says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Bring me there. Because what is there at the temple? There I can worship the Lord. Uh, Any day of the week, you could go and offer up sacrifices as prescribed and as set forth in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You could go and bring sacrifices. You go and participate in the worship of the temple. You could go to the Lord. And if the Lord, there's a, very, there's a very straightforward lesson here. It's very simple. If, if God is at the center of your life, then God's worship should be central to your life. And that's something, and I'm going to say it again because I think it's super important. If God is at the center of your life, then God's worship should be central to your life. It is, that is how we find God. That is how we relate to God. That is how God is known to us, and that is how we make ourselves known to God, is in worship. That is what the Lord is doing when he sends out his light and truth. That is where he leads you. He doesn't lead you someplace else. He leads you into his presence. And of course, that's why That's why we need to remember, most especially then, that it is Jesus himself who is truth and light. In John 8, John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. We come, we are drawn to, we come to Jesus Christ. We talk about God. When we talk about God, we're talking in fairly generic terms. But as believers, as Christians, it is Jesus Christ to whom you're drawn. And in Jesus Christ is life, the light that leads you to life. In him is salvation from sins. In him, in his death, is salvation from the sins which condemn you, but also then eternal life in the resurrection to come, being raised from the grave with him on the last day. That is the truth. There is no other truth than that. The enemy lies. The enemy says, where is your God? The enemy says, God has rejected you. And that's where the, the psalmist then takes the accusations of the, of the enemy and turns them back to God as a prayer. Have you rejected me? Reasonable question. It would appear that you've rejected me. Is the enemy right? Have you in fact rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? What is the truth? The truth is that even under those circumstances, God has not rejected you. That if you are saved from your sins, if you are washed in the blood of Christ, if you are clothed in the blood of Christ through his work on the cross, he is protecting you. He is your refuge, even though the enemy doesn't see it, and it may not be clear to you. You can be in miserable circumstances, in miserable life circumstances, and nonetheless be preserved, be preserved from the enemy, from the adversary, from sin and from the curse of death by our Savior Jesus Christ because that is what matters and that is the truth. That is the truth of what Christ has done for you and that is what needs and that is what will lead you to his holy hill. That is what will lead you to his dwelling place. When you see and understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is your Savior, when you see and understand who he is, that he is God, he is God himself become flesh and become one of us to die on the cross for your sins, that he is God himself dead and resurrected on the third day so that you can have everlasting life with him. When you understand the fullness of all that he has done for you, then you have no choice but to worship him. It is your heart's desire to worship him. And so where Psalm 46, remember, I'm sorry, Psalm 42 in verses 6 through 8, Psalm 42 in verses 6 through 8 remembered, remembered worship. Now in Psalm 43, the drive is to respond to him now, now, not just remember worship, but now respond with worship. Because God comforts you through worship. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. If there was pain in the memory of worship, Psalm 42 verse 4 talks about the pain of worship. Now in Psalm 43 verses 3 and 4, there is joy in worship by going to worship the Lord now. That as a believer, as a Christian, we have in particular Lord's Day worship. And, I, and as, a, as a Presbyterian, uh, we, I lay incredible stress 
on the ordinary means of grace which are given to us through in corporate worship, word, sacrament, and prayer. This is the height of the Christian week. Uh, this, is, this is what we live for. This is the apex, if you will, is the mountaintop. Sunday is the mountaintop of the Christian experience. Nonetheless, at any time you can pray to God because there is no holy hill. There is a holy hill in time. I'm just going to let you work with that metaphor, but it's true. There's a peak in time during the week, the end of the, the, end of the last week, the beginning of the new week, the, eight, the eighth day, which is also the first day. There's that, but throughout, throughout, throughout that week, you can always go to the Lord in prayer. You can always read his word. You can always worship him. It may not be... It may not be corporate worship, but nonetheless, the Lord is not far away. You may feel far away. And that is the problem that the psalmist expresses, the sons of Korah express in Psalm 42, particularly in verse 6, which you remember last week where he talks about the land of Jordan and of Hermon, Mount Mizar. That is, the headwaters of Jordan as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still be within the boundaries of Israel. You may feel far away from the Lord. But if you are clothed in his righteousness, which you have, to, you have to believe if you're a Christian, that you're clothed in his righteousness, there's no way to be a Christian and not be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, well, then you are clothed in Christ. You're united to Jesus Christ. He is not far away. You may feel he is far away, but he is there with you, and you can respond to him now. And that is why in worship you can find joy in him. Now is the time to realize that. I think this is the message of so much of Scripture and certainly of the Psalms is to wake up. Wake up to that which is true. The reality is that you are united to Jesus Christ. The reality is that now as we gather in corporate worship, that we have entered into the heavenly places and that we are atop heavenly Mount Zion, that we are in the literal heavenly holy of holies according to the book of Hebrews. It may not feel that way, it doesn't, but that doesn't matter. What it feels like, what matters is what is. And what Psalm 43 then is saying in light of Psalm 42 is, Lay hold of that. Open your eyes. See what God is doing. He is light. He is light for you to see, to realize what is at work, and there is joy then. There is even responding to God with the lyre, which is a commercial, I guess, for playing uh, praise songs on guitar, which is the closest New Testament equivalent of the lyre. Uh, but that's, so, so that's what we do. That's what we do. And so the answer in the midst, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of mourning, is to turn to the Lord in worship and to praise God because he is your God and joy. Worship restores you to the proper perspective. Psalm 43, verse 5, by the repetition by the, by the repetition of this refrain, we have a reinterpretation of this language. And it's not simply then a cry, but rather it is an encouragement. It is, in some sense, a 
remonstrance. It's a reminder that God has not abandoned you. And this is a remonstrance to hope. Remonstrance. Um, I apologize, I'm a Presbyterian, and so words like that come out of my mouth. Uh, the word remonstrate is to remonstrate. It's to, it's to say to yourself, or to remonstrate with somebody, is to say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And, that's a, and, that's in this, in this phrase, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? We're not dismissing the reality of turmoil. We're not dismissing the trouble that is in your life. That's why Psalm 42 stands on its own. But Psalm 43 says, is that the end? Are we going to end there? Are we going to end with, without, with mourning, without knowing where God is? Because that's not the end. We all know it's not the end. So it's, it's the present, but it's not the end. This life is full of suffering. It is indeed. This life is full of struggle. And there is pain every moment of every day. But it will end. It will end. And I'm not saying that flippantly. But it ends when our Lord returns in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The Lord is merciful. There are times that he breaks through even in this life and there is relief from suffering and sorrow. But for all of us, there comes an end. And that end, whether it's at death or at the resurrection, is an entrance into everlasting glory. And the sufferings of this present moment will appear temporary and light. They will. And so we look to that joy, and that is our hope. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And it is on the basis of that hope that you can praise the Lord. In the end, you will have it in perfection, but now you can have it. It is not an entirely abstract and future concept all the way out there. And there is nothing of it in the present. And we just got to grit our teeth and get through. Because the reality is, it is now. It is tangible. It is present. It is here. And there are tastes of it throughout the week in your own Bible reading and prayer and on your own with your family, with friends, however, take shape. It reaches its height, the top of the mountain on the Lord's Day as we gather in corporate worship with the saints. And it is, this is a foretaste of what there will be in glory. And that is the reminder then that you need. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? 
Come, take refuge. Come, take refuge. Because God has not rejected you. Hope in God. Instead, hope in God. He is, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He is here with us, and you are under his care. Therefore, beloved, do not be cast down, but put your hope in God, for you shall praise him both now and forever. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks then that you have made clear that which is sometimes foggy and distant from us, that indeed you have already done all things for us through Jesus Christ, and that the sufferings of this present age are but for a time. And so restore us again to hope, we pray. Help us to see and to understand the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in our lives now as he is working out his good purposes for us. And our Lord, we ask that in all things we may learn to rejoice as we cling to our hope, our everlasting hope, in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, world without end. Amen.